The right idea at the right time. The miracles of logistics every day. I just challenged all of their rules. Technology is revolutionizing this industry. Changed our lives. Close your eyes for a second. New York, Hong Kong, Paris. We're more connected. You just never know where the next innovation will come from. Rules are beginning to change. This is Longitudes Radio, a podcast with today's leading experts about the future of technology, global trade, sustainability, and logistics. I'm Brian Hughes. And I'm James Rowe. James, today we're talking about design thinking. And listeners know, before you worry, you don't have to be a designer to care about today's conversation. The reason I'm so confident is our guest is that good. His name is Tim Brown. Tim Brown is the CEO and president of IDEO, a company that's a longtime leader in design thinking. You've probably seen uh, or been impacted by their work. You know, they designed the first mouse for Apple, the first notebook-style computer, and even the 25-foot mechanical whale that was used in Free Willy. I would be telling any and everyone about that, by the way. I'd be like, you know you know that whale in Free Willy? That was me. That's right. Uh, but <laughs> my personal history with Free Willy aside, uh, some of you might be wondering what design thinking is. And I think the real important distinction here is that goes beyond simple ideation to an actual framework to getting at the greatest need for problems in the world today and how you can actually get results. If you want to understand design thinking even better, you can check out Tim's work for the Harvard Business Review. He's also a LinkedIn Top 150 influencer and the author of Change by Design. It's a book that explains how design thinking transforms organizations and inspires innovation. And we liked what Tim had to say so much that we actually turned this interview into two parts, both of which, James, sadly do not include you. You know, I, I missed it, but uh, and I wish I was there, but you had a great stand-in. Yeah, and uh, James' stand-in was David Lee. He's Vice President of Innovation and UPS Ventures here at the company. But perhaps more importantly, he is a Tim Brown superfan, and you guys will pick up on that pretty quick. All right, let's move forward with part one. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. I think a good place to get started, you've argued that for any business leader to be a better business leader, they could think more like designers. Can you get into a little bit of the philosophy of why all leaders would benefit from thinking more like designers? I think in many ways, the best leaders already do. So it's more it's it's more like asking leaders to understand and be conscious of things that they are, they already do. I mean, great leaders ask questions about what the organization should do next. That's what designers do. Great leaders think about how to unlock their people to solve problems that the organization needs to be solved. The best leaders, at least the ones I've come across, are also very well connected to their customers, which again is an important part of design thinking, is that you're learning from the people that you're trying to serve, rather than spending all your time talking inside your own organization about what you, how you wish the world was. Instead, go out and learn about how the world really is and how your customers really you know, exist and live their lives and the problems they have because they're the problems that you're supposed to be trying to solve. So in many ways, it's a, it's a question of, of, of pointing at the, the, the best behaviors of the best leaders and say, hey, we should all be doing this. Right. I think perhaps to add to that, I would say that because of the circumstances of business today, which is higher rates of change, higher rates of competition, disruption coming from places which are not from typical competitor sets, means that the kind of amount of innovation that organizations have to both generate for themselves or, or embrace from other places is going up. 
and that that requires the active engagement and the active participation of more and more of the organization. And so I think my goal is not so much to get all leaders to act like designers, but get all leaders to be able to lead their organization of designers. Right? They need they need they need as much of the organization as possible to be highly customer centered, highly able to solve problems and solve them quickly, and to put new solutions out into the world. Right, and the fuel for those leaders is oftentimes ideas. Right, I've heard you argue that ideas. That's the easy part. It's more how you act on it. And then secondly, how you share it. Can you get a little bit into how you overcome those barriers in the ideation process? Well, it's hard, right? Particularly, again, in the modern organization where we tend to slice people's time up a lot. Um, we were running around from one meeting to the next. Uh, it's, it's, it's often easy to get a group of people together and talk about an idea. But the time it takes to actually, well, let's go try that out. Let's actually go, let's go talk to some customers or let's go and make a little prototype of that idea. We've, hey, we've got an idea of a new service. Let's at least go and make a paper version of it and see if it makes Makes sense to a customer. That takes time, right? And so I think one of the biggest challenges we have is kind of in organizations actually organizing the time um, and the confidence to go out and try something. Sometimes, you know, we're, we live in a world where if we take something out, if we show somebody an idea and they say it's stupid, we think we've failed, right? Well, actually, if you show somebody an idea and they say it's stupid and you say, well, how would you make it better? How would you help me make it better? You've actually succeeded. You're describing my uh, daily nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Tim, I think UPS is in this this big transformation of itself. We recognize the sort of non-traditional competitors that are coming to market and we have to reinvent ourselves and create brand new businesses. And I, I firmly believe that we have a lot of the ideas. It's this taking ideas and creating routines and processes to turn them into action is, is frankly one of my responsibilities at the firm to make that easier. And so one of the things I worry about, you know, I've certainly read your work and I'm, a, you know, in some ways a disciple, right, of design thinking. I wondered if you would talk to us just a little bit about when you've seen other organizations try things and they thought they were doing it right, but they had missed the mark and they were doing things that maybe privately you would say that's that's not really going to get you where you need to go. Two things I would say that organizations struggle with. One is that uh, the easiest way to embrace design thinking is to work on ideas that are very short term mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and very obvious. The only problem with that is they're obvious to everybody else too. Mm. So you don't necessarily, even if you successfully launch those ideas, yeah. you don't get a lot, of dif- uh, a lot of competitive advantage from them. And so organizations sometimes give up because they're, they're tr- working hard and they're launching things and they're not making, they're not making a difference, mm. right? So being, sh- to, being too short term is a, is, is a problem. And so the, 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 I would say there are two, two ways of tackling that. One is encourage the organization to ask questions about the future, not just about the present. So actually form projects that are about, well, how are we going to solve this problem that's a five-year-away problem, hmm. not just a, a now problem, okay. right? It's hard to do, but ask questions about the future. The second one, I have to say, is look to build the number of people you have in the organization who have actually mastered some of these skills and not just learning them for the first time. It's very, it's very tempting and, and wholly laudable that organizations want to take as many people as possible and have them build these skills. Yeah. But but the truth is that on its own is probably not enough. And what they need are mentors and coaches and team members who've actually already got these skills. And so, you know, I mean, I think one of the talent brand challenges of organizations today is to be an attractive place for creative people to come and be. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they're creative from an engineering background or creative from a design background or from a marketing background, it doesn't matter what. But I think, you know, I'm seeing a lot of organizations fighting to acquire the kinds of people that they need in order to do this work really well. And I think when you're bringing in new types of skills and new types of mindset, new types of talent, right? 
One of the challenges I think a lot of organizations would struggle with is where do you put them? Yeah. Right? And have you seen good practices there that you could share with us? The, the temptation is we want this to ha- happen everywhere and work everywhere, so let's put the people everywhere. And that tends to have the effect of causing them to feel pretty lonely and they don't mm. stick around for very long. So I think it's a phase thing. Uh, and so I think you start off by trying to concentrate somewhere. So you pick a part of the organization that perhaps where you believe the needs are most apparent. It doesn't have to necessarily be around product innovation. It could be somewhere else. And concentrate the resources there. Have run what I call some of these beacon projects, projects which the rest of the organization can see that are making a difference, that starts to build demand amongst in, in the rest of the organization for these kinds of skills. And then, begin, then over time, begin to build these skills out, yeah. out, out everywhere else. So I think it's important, i got to clarify this, because David earlier said he was a disciple. I think it's more appropriate <laughs> to say he's a fanboy of yours, because the, the sound he emitted earlier, I mean, we can't, you know, we can't even put it on air. It was so odd. Uh, so fanboy, but disciple, yes. I'm totally uh, fanboy. Same. Yeah, there's no shame. I, I can see why. But you were talking about, uh, quote, creative people, and it got me thinking, because I think there's this idea out there, especially in large organizations, that there's the quote, creative ideas people, and then there's the so-called doers. Do you think that that's a little too rigid, that there is an opportunity for us all to be so-called creative people? Yes, I believe that human beings are generally able to have new ideas and be and be creative. Some human beings have got a, a set of skills that they tend to default to that are more analytical and, you know, are, you know, maybe rational, and they tend to default to those skills because they're strong at them. We all tend to default to the things that we're strong at, right? I'm not so strong at those things. I'm much stronger at some other things, and I default to them. So that, you know, that, that means that sometimes people don't give themselves permission to be creative. Some people also have kind of, you might think of them as kind of skeptical genes, which cause them to question their own ideas too early. And so give up on them before they've had a chance to prove to themselves that actually those ideas have actually got some merit. That's Again, that's something you can kind of train out of people, to be honest with you. Give them, it's, a, it's that creative confidence thing that I was talking about a little earlier. But So I, I do think it's possible to, uh, to, to get people, give people more confidence. I would say that I think it's, a, I, I think that it's, a, it's an unfortunate mythology that has been promoted both by creative people and by everybody else, that creative people are about ideas <laughs> and everybody else is about doing. I think the best creative people are incredibly entrepreneurial. The best creative people are, inc- are absolutely focused on doing. And this is true across all creative disciplines. I mean, you think about the best fashion designers, the best theater designers, the best musicians, the best designers, the best artists are people who do things. They're not just people who talk about ideas. In fact, one of the things that makes creativity most challenging for many people is that they don't feel they have the physical skills to, to express their ideas. Right, that's actually often the bit that gets in the way. So if you, if, you, if you think about it, I mean, I mean, I love music. I've got no musical skills. I can't play an instrument. And so what gets in the way of me ever thinking that I could express myself musically rather than just listening to music is because I don't have those skills of expression. I can't pick up an instrument and play something. And the same is true in design, right? People often think, well, I, I can't express an idea about how a service should be or how a product because I, I just don't know how to express it. I haven't got the drawing skills or the digital skills or anything else. That's often the thing that gets in the way. So successful creative people are doers. What do you do when you get in a creative rut? I mean, it happens to all of us, even the most creative. Do you kind of have a process that helps you work out of that? In a rut? Yeah. Um, are, are, you, are, you all, are you lucky enough that you don't go through those stages? Oh, no, really? no. I yeah. mean, I, I, mean, I, I find uh, uh, usually when you look at people who are in a creative rut, they've got themselves into a routine. 
and I see it. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, th- I think about my own career. There are times when I've been in a routine, often because I've done something really creative and I'm busy out in the world talking about that all the time and I'm, for- I'm, I'm not getting new insights. Yeah. I'm sort of living off that thing. And you, again, you see it with musicians, you see it with writers. So that, I think they get into a rut because they get into a routine. And that breaking routines is one of the most important things to do as a creative person. One of the best ways, in my opinion, of breaking routines is to go out and study new people. Go to new places, study new people. You know, we have this technique we use a lot at Idea, which we talk about. We talk about observing extreme users, which are people who, who are not our normal customers, right? So, if we're working on a, on a on a on a problem, we might think about, well, how could we go and study kids, even though they don't, even though this is an adult product, mm-hmm. or how could we go and study professional users and amateur users, or maybe we could go to a different country and and study how that culture deals with that problem. So, getting out that's again, it's getting out of the routine. And and uh, you know I, I genuinely believe that's the that's the best way of getting out of a rut. And people who you, we think of as being just insanely and continuously creative are, in my experience, ones who are insanely and continuously curious. And they and and they know how to never let themselves get in, into routine in the way they think. We all have some kinds of routines, at least I hope we do. But uh, but it's it's all about being able to get out of those thinking routines. So I think that I think one of the the things you've talked about is the the role of leaders is becoming better question askers rather than being the source of answers. So if there's anybody listening to this podcast, you know, who has got to a level of extreme sort of professional success because they had the answers. How do, you, how do you encourage them to either in themselves or the people on their team nurture this ability to say, I don't know what, those, what the answers to those questions are? Uh, there's, there's, the, there's an easy and obvious way, and there's a difficult, and, and, <laughs> and, uh, difficult way, a non-obvious way. They're both useful. Okay. Right? The easy and obvious way is to see, see the storm coming, right? I mean, yeah. is, is when, there are, when, there are, when there are things that you can see are going to affect your world that you don't understand, you're forced to ask questions about them, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people are sat here thinking, I don't understand blockchain today, but I have a sense it's going to rock my world, so I better, I, I better ask questions about it. I mean, that's, just, that's an example. But, I mean, so technology has a habit of doing that to us, but sometimes it's other things. So, I mean, if, if, you, if, you know, if, if, you're, if you're taking any notice of the outside world, there should be questions that are occurring to you because they're simply things you don't understand or don't know about. So, and, uh, and, and, and there it's more about having the courage and committing the time to exploring questions that don't necessarily seem urgent at the moment. The other type, which I think is much harder, is, is, is to ask questions about what are all the things I'm making assumptions about that I never question? Hmm. Right? What do we what do we assume about our customers? What do we assume about the way we respond to our customers? What do we assume about the best way to do things that are just built into our systems today that we never ask questions about? Let's ask questions about them. So, to challenging assumptions. I mean, it, you know, I mean, I think about that is the source of often those leaps of insight. I mean, the great scientists. I think that's what they often do. Right? They challenge assumptions about how the world is. And they ask a question, well, is this the, the truth or is this not the truth? Does, does the universe circle around the earth or not? Hmm. Yeah. Right? And if I challenge that assumption that the universe circles around the earth, where, do I, where, where does that take me? And, you know, that's what Galileo did and Kepler and a few other folks, right? Yeah. So, um, but they got, some of them got poisoned. Yes, it, it, <laughs> it is. Questioning assumptions takes bravery because the organization hates it when you question assumptions. Your colleagues hate it when they when you question assumptions because you make life difficult for everybody. Yeah, and so in some ways, 
both for, both forms of questioning have to deal with fear. Yeah. On the one case, on the one case, the storm it's being fearful of the storm, right? But in the other case, when it comes to questioning assumptions, it's it's the it's the fear of nobody's going to like you for doing it. Yeah, I think that the, some of the routines that I, I think are so important are how do you allow the ideas to escalate in a way that requires less courage on the part of sort of middle management that goes between somebody at the very front lines having something that they think is brilliant, but every time you move it up. You're taking six months of research and boiling it down to five minutes, and the decision-making press gets us so small. Yeah, I mean, this is something that Roger Martin and I wrote a little bit about in Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago. We wrote an article we called, I think we called it Design for Action, but it was about, we have this concept we talked about, we called intervention design. And it's this notion of what are the things that you can design into the process that move the process along almost kind of naturally? Mm-hmm. How can you anticipate this? And uh, one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the things that we do as designers, which is a great a form of intervention design is building prototypes and building lots of them. Because every time you build a prototype, you get more evidence for how good your idea is. And if you if you do a good job of sequentially building prototypes, you can move the idea along quite quickly and a long way. In each case, in each case, you've got more evidence for why it's a good for why it's a good idea. And there's not this moment which so often happens and ki- often kills ideas, where you're suddenly having to get everybody's agreement to how good an idea is, is that you have that you've got no evidence for. Yes, yes, yeah. And it's so much easier, what I find is that people can say yes to something when they can hold it in their hands and see what it's about. Exactly. I want to ask you kind of a macro question, too, that I'm interested in, because you've been talking about design thinking for so many years now. Have you been surprised at all at how the concept itself has evolved and by that, I mean, has the philosophy changed in ways that you didn't expect to kind of adapt to the conditions we're seeing around the world? I mean, we, yeah, yes. Is the I mean, I, one, I didn't expect it to be a as popular a idea as it's turned yeah, out. Congrats. To be. Um, you have way more fanboys than you probably, <laughs> and well, fangirls, probably. Well, uh, for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And I don't deserve because it's a, it's, there are many people responsible for, for design thinking. And, and as my colleague, Barry Cates, who helped me write the book, uh, talks about there's a whole cottage industry in terms of where design thinking came from in the first place. It certainly wasn't invented by me or us. But yeah, I uh, so the things that the things that have changed. Firstly, I think that as you know, as 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 more and more organisations have explored it, I mean, what should have been obvious and probably was obvious, I just didn't think about it. Was was this challenge around mastery? Right? These are not these are simple skills to understand, but quite hard things to do, as so many of the best things in life are. And that it's not easy for organisations to get good at it. There are some that are doing that very well. But it takes commitment over time. I mean, it's not something you learn in three months or six months or even three years, right? It takes a long-term commitment. Much easier to do, you know, if you if if, if it's born into the organization at the beginning. Um, so we have organizations today that are were configured around design thinking right from the beginning. A company like Airbnb, for instance, which was founded by design thinkers and has got design thinking through every piece of its culture. It's much easier for them than it is for an organization that's trying to embrace it and, and build it into an existing existing culture. And so, take, and that takes that that takes serious serious commitment. I think the the other thing that we've learned, which is which is very exciting, is just how many places it can be applied. Right. And, you know, I, I, I didn't expect, for instance, governments to embrace design thinking at the level that they have. And there are government teams and departments all over the world now that are using design thinking to drive policymaking, for instance. And the relationship actually between design and policymaking is a very interesting one, you know, where we're seeing all kinds of organizations like the World Economic Forum and others who are exploring that pretty actively. And I think it's got real promise for the future in terms of the way that we think about having policy that's much more agile and evolves much more quickly, particularly as new technologies evolve. There's so many things I want to 
ask you about, but you'd mentioned Airbnb and their sort of heritage and design thinking. One of the things that I really admire about them, and I haven't been to the space, but I gather they, they view themselves as a hospitality company, right? And that means they open up their offices to other people. So if you don't work at Airbnb, but you want a great place to go work, you can go sit in their spaces. Yeah, they have, and I find the, that remarkable. Yeah, they have, I mean, their main building, which I've been to many times, even though I've never been to a meeting at Airbnb that I'm aware of, that I can remember. I've been to many, many things there, partly because they have some other companies that are based, there, based in, in their kind of downstairs area, which you go and hang out in. Partly because, they, yeah, they've got all these cafes. There's no security. There's security to get into the Airbnb bit, but that you can go and use these cafes and, and sit in their space. They, they host events there all the time. Had, we've had World Economic Forum events there, for instance. And so, yeah, you're right. They, are, they, 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 treat, they treat the idea of hospitality very seriously. And the other, the other thing that they treat very seriously, and you may have seen Joe Gebbia's TED Talk from a couple of years ago, which I thought was a good one on designing for trust, and you know he 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 argues that really the whole the fundamental problem that Airbnb has been tackling right from the beginning was is how to design for trust, trust. because they, what they're trying to do is outrageous when you think about it. <laughs> they're trying to have strangers go and stay in other strangers' houses, right, and everybody feel good about it, yeah. right? Um, which you say on the surface is is nuts, but <laughs> and so and so they've had to think about designing for for trust right from the beginning. I. I genuinely believe that designing for trust is one of the great design challenges of of our day. Certainly. Right? That, and that we have technologies now, you know, like blockchain and the web, which enhance our abilities for designing for trust at scale. Yeah. But they also make trust a, a sort of a difficult a difficult concept. Uh, it's very easy to betray trust also at scale. Uh, uh, and so it raises the stakes. But I think all organizations today, at the back of their minds, ought to be thinking about how we through our design decisions building trust how we, because in the end you know the 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 thing that arguably for certainly for any service organization that's more precious than anything else it's the trust of your customer yes and 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 if if you're if you've established trust and you have a bank of trust then there are so many other things you can do hey guys part 2 of our interview with tim brown comes next week If you like what you heard today, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or right on our website at longitudes.ups.com. And after you've signed up for the podcast, please drop us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Only if you're nice.